In the ring with Eusebius Makaiser. Eusebius Makaiser. Last night, Sunday night, there was a letter that had been making the rounds on social media and it emanated from Athel Williams. Now, Athel Williams, you will know, is a very important witness to state capture and has done a lot as an activist with a speciality in corporate good governance, in ethics as well, as an academic and also having worked within corporate South Africa. And many of you who have seen him on your TV screens doing his testimony at the State Capture Commission of Inquiry. He's taken a decision to leave the country, and that is because he doesn't feel safe. And I thought, let me reach out to him and understand what might entail a family man taking such a drastic decision. And furthermore, what that says about whistleblowing, disincentives to actually whistleblow, and the wider set of themes that flow from that kind of conversation. Athel, good morning to you, and thank you so much for speaking to me, and I'm glad that you are safe enough to be able to conduct this conversation. Thanks, Eusebius. You left when and why? I left less than a week ago. It was Monday, November the 1st. Um, that's the, the when. The, the why was was desperately, sadly, because I felt forced into this position where I felt unsafe. Um, I felt I've been living in fear for the last few months since I testified before the Zonda Commission. And when I say living in fear, I was literally not leaving my apartment, um, uh, keeping our curtains closed. Mm. And when um, I did leave, I'd be hiding, laying down the backseat of my, you know, my wife's car, Living that way just didn't make sense to me anymore. Um, you see, because the way, you know, the way I think about it, you know, I, anyone who's grown up in a township will understand this. It's, it's, you know, when you live in a township, you know who the drug dealers are and who the gangsters are. Everyone knows, right? And most of us don't say anything because we know there's reprisals for pointing out who the gangsters are and who the drug dealers are. Mm. Now, what I did, in effect, by going to the Zonda Commission, and testifying and implicating 39 parties. What I've in effect done is I've gone and grabbed the policeman and walked him to the houses of each of the drug dealers and gangsters and said, there they are, there they are. And expecting the policeman to arrest the bad guys. And if there were reprisals, expecting the policeman to protect me. Now that's, neither of those two things have happened. I've gone and pointed out the bad guys, named them, named them, and... No one's protecting me, and no one's taking any action against the bad guys. In terms of the risk to your and your family's physical and other forms of security, is there any part of the state security machinery that have collected objective data to evaluate whether there's any imminent risk to your physical safety? And have they communicated that to you? Alternatively, how did you arrive at the conclusion, other than the subjective feeling of feeling unsafe, how did you arrive at the conclusion that you are objectively unsafe? So I've heard nothing from any of the authorities um, and neither to offer support or to offer an assessment even. Um, so I don't know what the official view is of, of my safety. Um, in terms of objective um, basis for my decision, um, I, 
have received no um, physical threats. Um, so I've received no direct threat. But again, I go, are we going to wait until someone has a gun to your head before you say you're in danger? Um, my statement of, of Sunday night was quite clear. I did not say I received threats. I said I received many warnings. So the day after I testified before the Zonda Commission in March of this year, I received a call from an international NGO who said to me, just the basis in what I've just done, the, 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 the scope of my testimony, who I fingered. You remember, I put people in the room with Zuma and Bain. I named them and provided evidence of all the people who were in those meetings. And, and this international NGO said to me, the basis of, of, of that testimony, your, your risk has just skyrocketed. Um, then you see this, I've received warnings from, from senior government officials, from people who were in exile in the past, just saying they're watching the behavior and what's going on. And they're saying this is looking more and more like a coordinated effort. Of course, when, when Babita Diokaran got assassinated, I mean, the panic in me just skyrocketed. Because when I speak to the other whistleblowers, other state capture whistleblowers, we all kind of went, this is exactly our same experience, our worry. Um, I mean, Babita went to the same NGOs that I went to, um, right, looking for help. Mm. Um, people outside their house, um, um, other whistleblowers don't sleep at their homes. Mm. They've all beefed up their security. Mm. So I think it's a fair question to to say on what basis, what objective basis do I make the decision? And to be honest, there's very little. Um, it, it's based on these warnings, on the fact that I've named the, 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 the culprits in state capture and the fact that um, people are telling me it looks more and more dangerous for where I am. But it doesn't seem as if there is either, in theory or in practice, standard operating procedures for how to give optimal and adequate protection of whistleblowers? Well, there's none from what I can tell. Um, I mean, there's none. I've never at any point of the last two years uh, since blowing the whistle had any one from the authorities, from the police, from any of the organs of state uh, approach me with an, an, you know, an outline of what to expect, of what to do, do's and don'ts, guidance of how to maintain my safety, nothing at all. Um, um, in fact, when I've asked the, the Zondo Commission for protection, the first thing they asked me was if I received a death threat. So again, we only seem to want to wake up when someone's got a gun to your head. Um, when the head of the SIU was asked, sorry, the spokesman for the SIU was asked why they didn't provide protection for Babita Diokaran, the same thing they said, she didn't report any, any death threats. So if receiving a death threat is our signal, Eusebius, before we offer help for people who are clearly standing in danger, then we've got a real problem um, because, because like the other whistleblowers, we are looking and we're observing and we're saying, no, no. Absolutely. Worst of all, if something did happen to me, I have no confidence the authorities would even do anything. Mm. What's interesting about the statement you released in order to give people a sense of why what we are fighting in terms of corruption is worse than sometimes the media narrative would have you believe, is the exceptionalism narrative that you want to push back against. I want you to say a bit about that. McKinsey tried that strategy, where Vikas Sagar, a director in the Johannesburg office, was thrown under the bus, yeah. and perhaps he agreed to it in order to get a cushy payout, who knows. But 
it allowed the company to attempt to do something that was not convincing, and I wasn't convinced as a former McKinsey employee, where they tried to drive a wedge between Vikas and the company, McKinsey mm. culture, McKinsey behavior. But of course, as a senior partner, he is McKinsey. Yes. He is the entire box of tomatoes. He's not the one rotten one that has to be chucked out. Speak yeah. into that and explain why you are concerned that many prominent names with positive word cloud associations in South Africa are problematic unbeknownst to the public. Mm. The language I use often is this idea of the lone rogue, right? They, they, we try and paint this picture of a lone rogue. And so the organization says, uh, it's not us. It's that one you know, rotten tomato, rotten apple. It's the lone guy. He acted on his own. Now, Eusebius, any, you don't have to have worked in corporate business for 20 or 30 years to know that no organization works in a way where they can absolutely be a lone rogue, right? There's always people around you who know what you're doing. There's always people you need to get approval for resources. There are always people who need to sign up on things being done. There are meetings and plans and strategies. That's how organizations work. More so with management consulting firms. So you talk about McKinsey, you talk about Bain, right? Where everything all the time is, is, is allocated. So everything I'm doing, I've got to, I've got to account for that. Mm. So this idea that someone could be doing something completely unbeknownst to anyone else in the organization, it's just complete nonsense. Um, I mean, I definitely saw that at Bain, right? So Bain were trying to paint this picture of saying, well, it was, was just the lone rogue. And my entire evidence shows that not only was Masone at Bain supported from below, he was endorsed from above. It went all the way back up to Boston. You couldn't separate Masone from, from Bain just as you, you cannot separate Vickers from McKinsey. Um, because as you say, not only did he represent McKinsey, he was McKinsey, but it was endorsed by McKinsey. Now, so, so that's, that, that's that specific example, right? But what I'm experiencing in South Africa is that everywhere I turned for help to the big law firms, to the big corporates, to the, to the NGOs, I began seeing this web, crossover web, where everyone seemed to have been connected, Right. You go to Business Leadership South Africa, who now have endorsed Bain, right? They, they've basically said to the world, we endorse this company that Bonang Mohali, president of Busa, says committed heinous crimes at the heart of state capture. We've got the leaders of our business community, the most influential group, saying we endorse Bain. Now, look at that group, the board of BLSA. Each of them are on the boards of two or three other companies headed by one of their peers, Right. So this incestuous nature of our society now says if Athol upsets one place, he's actually upsetting 20 other places mm -hmm. because, of, because of those connections, mm -hmm. right? What, look what happened to me at UCT. Mm. At UCT, I was the simple little lecturer who said to UCT, hey, I noticed you guys have employed McKinsey. Kind of odd that you'd employ McKinsey at a time when they are central to state capture. Mm. Why would that be? And oh my God, I mean, the whole place fell on my head with the ton of bricks that came down on me for even asking the question. Mm. When, I, when I, I got no reply from the business school where I was working about my concerns, and I, I raised it to the vice chancellor, no reply from the vice chancellor, right? People wrote to the vice chancellor and she, she ignored all the emails. 
are then elevated to the chair of the council. And the chair of the council said, Apple will we'll investigate this. What did they do, you see? Because they didn't investigate my ethical concerns about using state capture companies. They investigated me and put out a report that said Apple is a troublemaker, Apple is a liar, right? So much so that the dean of the faculty of law at UCT went onto Twitter attacking me, um, my character, and spouting these lies. Now, now you go, what's going on here? Right? I'm raising a little concern. If there was no concern about McKinsey, they would say, Apple, no concern, move on, right? But why go on this attack? The same with business leadership South Africa, the same with Bain. So for me, you have to look at these networks. And that's what's frightening for me because you can't then say, let's, let's get McKinsey out of the country um, or, or get Bain out of the country or get one of their people gone. It's the people who are remaining. Mm. That's my concern. So I think that's right, Ethel. I think that's absolutely right. And it's something which us South Africans need to be exceptionally wary of that the idea that if you get rid of one or two people that have been busted with their hands in the cookie jar, that you can then wake up the following morning and have a clean slate and start again, and you can have good governance principles mm. that govern the way we do business. Batopela principles magically gets infused uh, within every building and imbued within the character of every public servant. And corporate South Africa suddenly really takes seriously ethics and not just maximizing value. I mean, I mean, all of that is absolute balderdash, isn't it? Because the reality is, as you say, that when you have dealt with networks and you have a certain culture that is in mm. place, you cannot, as a matter of fiat, get rid of ingrained culture and systemic corruption because the very definition of acculturation and systemic problems is that they require deep, 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 deep work to undo. Absolutely, absolutely. And they need visionary, bold leadership and action to bring about that change. Because you talk about deep change, the depth of that change that's required is going to be painful. And so it requires visionary, bold leadership. Now I looked, look around me and I struggle to see where that leadership is going to come from. Um, you know, you see this, this might be a bit too dramatic, but I look at how Colonialism worked in, in, on the continent and even apartheid in, in our country. And often, often the, the, the oppressors didn't themselves go in and oppress, right? They created this layer. We know, we know the Bantustans, they created leaders of Bantustans, um, the colonialists created chiefs. So it was actually often our own people who brought about the, the, the direct oppression, mm. right? Now, I see this exact same system in play today. Because when I look around and say, who are the people who are actually enabling state capture and, and corruption and um, benefiting from it? It's people who look like me. It's people who I thought were my brothers and sisters. It's people I thought were fighting for our democracy and defending our democracy. But they're not. Um, in a very short space of time, our very own people have forgotten about our fight against colonialism and against oppression. And they've just moved to the other side. Um, I look at you know what's happening at, at you know in all the spaces where I've experienced it, um, right? It's black South Africans, um, it's Africans who are acting as if they are colonial Europeans, mm. um, and I think again these are people who we admire in our society, mm. um, right? These are people we hold up as heroes. Second last question: What do you want right now for yourself and from who? 
Well, it's a bit it's a bit late now, um, right? For the for the last six months, I've been calling on our president to um, actually put some funding behind whistleblower support and protection, um, and and this required very small amounts of money, Eusebius, right? We, we needed money to, to provide legal protection, to have health, health protection, and then to replace some of the income we lost. Um, so the president could have done that with a stroke of his pen, um, as opposed to just talking about it. Um, so that's what I wanted. Right now, it's, that's too late for me. because You I've should be country. very employable. You've got, I can't keep up with your qualifications. You've got a laundry list of excellent qualifications and output from all over the place, South Africa, the United Kingdom. You're a creative as much as you are an academic. You write poetry, books. I mean, you, you really are an incredibly, incredibly talented workhorse across various parts of the economy. And yet, despite that, your statement last night, I almost read it too quickly, two lines, because I didn't want to believe my eyes, seemed to imply, and I've, it's not the first time a whistleblower has said that, um, that suddenly people regard you as a troublemaker and opportunities dry up and you end up having to sell stuff. How have you been directly financially and then psychologically being impacted? Well, before I answer that question, I mean, we should not be surprised, right, that whistleblowers are ostracized the way we are. If you just, if you just think about it, um, our, our, in whose interest is it to have, have truth tellers around? You only want truth tellers around when you want the truth out, when you've got nothing to hide. Now, I think partly of what we've discussed in this conversation and partly of what has become um, blatantly evident in the state capture um, um, revelations is that, that there are a vast amount of organizations in our country who don't want the truth to be out. So I think that's, that's the, the stronger indictment. So it's less about Apple, what do you want? It's actually wanted to have a conversation with you know, the top 40 CEOs in our country and saying, why is it that you guys don't want whistleblowers around? Um, because they're the ones who can change things. Um, anyway, to your question, Eusebius, I mean, you know, I, I said to someone um, speaking to them earlier that um, because I seem eloquent and um, together, uh, it makes it seem that I have no direct personal impact from this. Um, but nothing's further from the truth. I mean, I, I've suffered deepest depression I've ever known um, just because of the uncertainty and the fear, right? Bain and Company's lawyers, Baker McKenzie, are the, are the America's largest law firm. That's who I'm up against with no legal support from any of the law firms in our country because I can't afford to hire them myself. Um, I, I, this idea of living in fear, even this weirdness of being ostracized, right? I was an advisor to CEOs in our country for over 15 years. So I know them personally. Yet when I pick up the phone and call them, uh, and I'm talking about CEOs of JSC listed companies today, um, they've got no consulting work for me, don't want me on their boards, um, you know, can't take my calls, don't return my calls. It's a, it's, when, when you get ostracized like that, that alienation, that abandonment I wrote about in my statement, it hits you, it knocks you. Because literally, I've had to stop and say, maybe I've done the wrong thing here. Maybe I'm the fool. Right? I thought I was doing a good thing. I saw a wrong that I wanted to make right. And, but the fact that no one, I mean, no one stood up with me. There was no petition. 
There was no backer buddy campaign. There was no corporate CEO saying, geez, this guy's doing right. We should support him. Nothing. So for me, it was devastating, right? I mean, my health has been devastated um, financially. I mean, I've sold, I've sold um, things in South Africa now. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm confused. I'm devastated. I've got mix of emotions, which range from anger to sadness, um, and then to determination to say no, but I still think it's worth standing up. Because you see this for every one of me, I think there's a thousand other whistleblowers who don't have the, the, the visibility that I have. Mm. And so I do feel it's my responsibility to speak up on behalf of all of us. Without compromising your safety, how did you manage to get out and are you looked after? Um, I mean, I, I did it on my own. I applied for funding to international organizations, um, but I, you know, I didn't get any, any money. I think, again, because I couldn't show anyone holding a gun to my head. Um, I, uh, the reason I left only last week was because of travel restrictions um, and to getting a visa. So I've managed to get a visa um, on, on my own steam. Uh, I'm not, um, I haven't applied for asylum, so I've just applied for a visa to kind of go uh, and be where I am. Mm. And then the last question, speak directly to my listeners as fellow South Africans. What can they do and what should they do in relation to whistleblowers? Because... We like whistleblowers because we get Ama keep keep ready when we listen to you spilling the beans on TV, and then we continue with the rest of our days. But we shouldn't do that, should we? What should our attitudes be, and what should we do after we've heard whistleblowers telling us truth? At the end of my testimony to the Zonda Commission, I talked about us needing to enter the era of the brave. I understand why people remain silent because of fear. Uh, I know that fear. Um, we fear. We fear supporting whistleblowers because of, of the association risk, right? If, you know, if I'm friends with Athol, oh my God, I might lose my job. I might be seen as whatever they fear. So there's this fear that dominates and we can shrink behind that fear. And so whistleblowers will wither away because my experience discourages other, other whistleblowers. And so we'll just get into a state where whistleblowers won't speak up. So I think we as South Africans are at a major inflection point, um, you see, because I think we're at an ethical or moral inflection point where we are going down a path very quickly and we've got to stem that flow. And how are we going to stem that flow is if South Africans are going to say, you know, this far and no further right? We'll be digging our heels and saying, I'm going to stand up and change this. And that comes with risk. So I'm calling on South Africans to enter this era of the brave, where we say, we will stand up. And you know, I accept, you see, because not everyone can be a whistleblower. We don't want everyone to be a whistleblower. But what everyone can do is support a whistleblower, right? When someone, you know, not once did I ever get a public statement from any organization. You know how powerful that it would have been for me? If, if I had my former university or my former employer say, we support Athol, we support what he's doing, um, those are things people can do. Mm -hmm. So I think it's about putting yourself out there, publicly supporting whistleblowers. But I think this idea of being brave, mm -hmm. we need brave action, we need brave citizens we need to exercise our agency. Mm -hmm. Because just sitting back and watching this like live TV or, mm -hmm. or reality TV is going to just leave us down that path. And I don't believe that anyone can be neutral in a situation like this. You are allowing harm to continue.
Brilliantly put. Athol, thank you for having a working moral compass. I hope that you continue being safe and that these structural issues that affect the capacity to be a whistleblower can be dealt with so that one does not have to self-censor in the face of being a witness to state capture. Thank you for coming on my platform. Thanks, Eusebius.